This is Tales of My Dead Heroes. And to me, Lieber and Stoller were the most important songwriters in the second half of the 20th century, after Lennon and McCartney. They affected and changed the culture just as much as Irving Berlin did in the first half of the century. I spent many hours with Jerry Lieber after midnight when he came alive. I even nicknamed him Midnight Jerry. I'm Josh Allen Friedman. Let me tell you about it. Their songs were lyric-driven, and like Irving Berlin, Jerry Lieber's first language as a child was Yiddish. That he would shape the entire language of rock and roll in English is a phenomenon that few understand. Lieber and Stoller's early mission statement was making black folks laugh, which they did in the early 1950s. But through them, along with Chuck Berry, Little Richard, and Fats Domino, they took this insular music of rhythm and blues and broke it worldwide as it became rock and roll. Jerry let me record him talking for over 50 hours. We were writing a book that never got finished. We'll get that done. From the time we start, we'll be through in about three to five months. And we'll have it all down. I, I learned a lot about, cause, about collaborating, because I'm not really... I, I collaborate with Mike, but he writes notes, you know? And I write words. And even though there's a similarity in each other helping each other with criticism and what have you, it's a different involvement. I've learned something in the, in the, the middle of the process that's going to work out very, very fortunately for you and me, which is I've learned to work a certain way with somebody else when writing a book, not a, a song. Oh, it's I await the process. I am more confident now about it than I ever have been, and I've liked the idea for a long time. But it did come out as an 80-page chapter in my book, Tell the Truth Until They Bleed. I recorded him for a year on microcassettes, the worst format in the history of recording devices. I did transcribe all of these cassettes. Jerry sang to me, told me endless stories that I shaped out on paper, a few of which I'll read here. What kills me is that all of these microcassettes self-erased. They lost their magnetism just by storing them on top of a CD player. All that survived is about 45 minutes, which I will play snippets from so you can hear his voice. And I'll play some private demos and tracks you've never heard. But first, here's Jerry Lieber himself singing lead with his alter ego group, The Coasters. Sitting in the blue light diner Life could be much finer Nothing here but beer and a bunch of men But I'm so down I can't be choosy And here come old side order Susie Shake him up and let him roll, let him roll again Along with his partner Mike Stoller, Jerry Lieber invented the craft of producing records. They were the first in the 1950s to be christened record producer. Before Lieber and Stoller, recording sessions were managed by record company A&R men, who were basically traffic cops. But a record producer became the music equivalent of a movie director, a new concept which Lieber and Stoller inserted into their contract at Atlantic Records. They wrote, arranged, and produced songs with their very own in-house groups. The Coasters was their doo-wop vaudeville act, and the Drifters were their adult singers, they wrote records, not just songs. 
And as songwriters, producers, or brill-building publishers, Lieber and Stoller were possibly responsible for more hit records than anyone in history. If you still don't get my drift, I'll toss off a few of their songs right now. Hound Dog, Jailhouse Rock, Treat Me Nice, Don't, Love Me, Stand By Me, On Broadway, Charlie Brown, Yakety Yak, Youngblood, Searchin', King Creole, There Goes My Baby, Is That All There Is, Smokey Joe's Cafe, Love Potion Number 9, Ruby Baby, Poison Ivy, I Who Have Nothing, D.W. Washburn, Along Came Jones, Saved, Little Egypt, Riot in Cell Block Number 9, well, you get the idea. It goes on like the yellow pages. What, do you want more? Even without Mike, Jerry co-wrote Spanish Harlem, Down Home Girl, and the Johnny Cash June Carter song, Jackson. You know, We Got Married in a Fever. My father brought Jerry Lieber to our house in 1965 when I was nine years old. This is the guy who wrote Elvis's hits. Well, I only knew Elvis from his stupid movies back then. I remember asking Jerry if Presley really played guitar or was faking it. Jerry said, well, he knew just a few chords. But what stopped me cold was that Jerry wrote one of the songs on the new Beatles 65 album, Kansas City. So then for the next 40 years, I was dying to learn Jerry's secrets, his life story, his deep thoughts. He gave few interviews and remained a private figure. But oh my God, what a floor show he was. Hey, Pops, how you doing? I'm doing great. Catch in the middle? You no. You, I was thinking about you this afternoon, about 5.30, no, 5.45, when you bit into the pastrami sandwich, the juice and the coleslaw went on to your good genes. Uh, you know, there's this thing, new phenomenon called YouTube. You probably heard of it. YouTube, you made a group? YouTube is a, it's like MySpace, mm -hmm. but YouTube is, um, I just looked you up on it, sure enough, there you were. Yeah. On YouTube, walking out uh, after a Tom Jones performance of Jailhouse Rock. So that's why. You and, and Mike. I never remember that happening to me. Well, it was about five, six years ago. Yeah, but that doesn't matter. Some tribute or something. Oh, and then you came out. London. That, that was, was in London? concert that they did at this, uh, something like, uh, you know, it was like the Rose Bowl. And they had like uh, 50 artists, and Tom Jones was one of the, was one of the starring artists. He, he brought you out, and you came out, and you took a, you took a few bows and blew yeah. kisses to the audience. You couldn't tell they were British. Yeah, no, no, they were they were young, pretty young crowd. And he did a he did a it was like eighteen or twenty thousand people. He did a um a perfectly competent job with it. You know, and the band he, sounded pretty good. He can sing his ass off when he's on, and he can really sing. I mean, he ain't Muddy Waters, but he can sing. I mean, he's the kind of singer that could sing with uh, Count Basie's band. He could sing like Joe Williams, who's a great, you know, shout blues singer. But he could have sung with Basie or Ellington. These days, I think he just does Vegas kind of shows. Well, that, no, that's so. That's, it's true. He doesn't do serious. Now, but, you know, I mean, he must be in his middle of his late 60s. Yeah, but just to be able to do anything, you know, just yeah. to have a career even in Vegas, is uh, there's a lot of dignity in that. Burning is an accomplishment. You know, right. <laughs> because most guys are out of work, you know. Yeah. Or someone like Dion probably has to play a Holiday Inn or God knows what. God knows. You know, um, just an oldie show or something. But Tom Jones at least can headline casinos and stuff, which is probably a lot of fun, but it's not... It's not I don't think it's any fun after 45. I think that shit gets to be tiresome. You know, 
for the most part. I don't know, not, not maybe not everybody. I think Sinatra loved to perform all of them. Oh, of course. Whole life. Jerry claimed he'd rather have had one song cut by Sinatra than the 23 songs Elvis recorded. I didn't believe that for a second. But he felt that Sinatra and Billie Holiday were the two big trophies that he never bagged. But Lieber and Stoller finally did write a song for Sinatra. The Girls I Never Kissed. I heard Sinatra do it at Carnegie Hall in 1987 with Jerry there. But Sinatra just couldn't find his voice. During two separate recording sessions, he booked with arranger Billy May. So it wasn't released in Frank's lifetime. You assume every note Sinatra ever sang was perfect. But even with Sinatra, it just doesn't come out of a faucet. Jed Lieber and Peter Stoller, the sons of Jerry and Mike, did a brilliant restoration mix of The Girls I Never Kissed, just to get this version you're about to hear. The only time Sinatra was auto-tuned, like Britney Spears. Jerry thought The Girls I Never Kissed was one of the three best melodies Mike Stoller ever wrote. It was a heartbreaker for both of them that Sinatra couldn't nail it and the record was never released. Jerry wanted Willie Nelson to try it, but never got it to him. Well, you don't mean Willie Nelson. Yes, I do. Exactly. It'll work with his, because Sinatra has a, has a perfect voice, and Willie has always had a cracky voice. But I think it would be absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah, sure. So please, someone out there, get this to Willie Nelson before it's too late. The old wolf sniffs the summer breeze And dreams about his youth For the sight of skirts above the knees Turns his hard-boiled brain to cheese And the scent of honey in the trees Whets an old sweet tooth The pretty girls Go strolling by I look at them And heave a sigh And think of all The things I've missed and all the pretty girls I've never kissed They smile from fields of daffodils They wave from high and windy hills In secret places by the sea the girls I never kissed still wait for me. All the girls whose names I can't recall, their faces haunt me still. All the pretty girls I've never kissed and never will 
the girls of spring, the girls of fall, the girls of summer, most of all. If only time did not exist, if only I could catch that boat I always miss. I'd go back and kiss all the pretty girls I've never Only Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller could write great songs for Elvis, and then years later turn around and write an authentically great song for Sinatra. Sinatra announced at Carnegie Hall they'd finally grown up and wrote a great song. No other songwriters could pull off such a feat in two such different genres, rock and roll and American songbook. Sonny. One day, in the early 60s, Jerry bought two pairs of children's suspenders from a street vendor while strolling down Broadway. As he approached the Brill Building, a hulking black fellow suddenly draped an arm around his shoulder. You're Jerry Lieber, right? He asked. I've been wanting to meet you for years. I love your music. The come on was suspect. Anyone on the street who loved Lieber and stole a record, say a musician or a hipster, would usually say, I dig your shit, or love your stuff, man. Not so formal. Grinning, the big man continued, I've got some friends who really want to meet you. Jerry said he'd love to, but had another appointment. But the man insisted, motioning toward some joint on the side of the Brill Building. Don't worry, you're right in there. Asking if they might meet later instead, Jerry said his office was right upstairs. We know, said the man. You do? Yeah, everybody knows where you are, he said. Tell you what, I'll give you my number, give me a call. I'll tell you when I'm free around one o'clock. We don't make appointments. Well, I've got to make this meeting, said Jerry. I really don't think you gotta, the stranger said, friendly as pie. I think... Our meeting is very important, and you ought to cancel. So why don't you call your secretary, tell her to call that appointment off, and tell them you'll meet them later. If you could meet us at one o'clock, then meet them at one o'clock. Checkmate. Not wanting to look scared out of his wits, Jerry reconsidered. There was a telephone booth on the corner of 49th and Broadway, infested by every broken-down pimp and bookie within ten blocks of Times Square. Jerry sized the guy up in case he'd have to pick him out of a lineup later. He was about six foot two, although he seemed seven feet tall. Jerry called his secretary, Faith. This big black guy grabbed me in front of the Brill Building and says he loves my work and he loves me and he wants me to come and meet his friends because they love my work and are dying to meet me. He's taking me to some deli downstairs. Faith just said, go. Lieber exited the phone booth and said, Take me to the leader, Jack. Jerry's escort turned out to be 
notorious Nate McCullough, an outside hitter connected to the Genovese mob. Word had it he was a highly decorated former Marine officer, once a member of the Black Honor Guard for the President of the United States. Upon his release, he became Morris Levy's right-hand enforcer. Nate would meet his end three years later in Florida, a bullet through the eye, the same fate as Bugsy Siegel. At the moment, however, he remained lethal. Lieber had worked at the Brill Building for years and knew something about New York delicatessens. Yet somehow, he'd never noticed this little deli nudged against the Brill Building, smack dab next door to Jack Dempsey's on the ground floor. The entrance was five feet deep with a meat case diorama showcasing pastrami, corned beef, hot dogs. An old guy, about 80, stood watch over the store while his younger counterman carved the sandwiches. The old man regarded Nate with suspicion, squinting at him as if he might hold up the joint. What do you want? What do you want? Polite as always, Nate said, we want to join our friends for lunch. The old Jew broke into a smile. Of course, he said, follow me. When they reached the back of the deli, Jerry's heart stopped. Eleven of the ugliest guys he'd ever seen sat twiddling their thumbs. Each one looked like a gargoyle skewed on top of a church steeple in Paris. All had their backs to the wall, except one, and he sat facing the others, his back to Lieber. Nate introduced him to Sonny, a bull-necked balagula with a limp dick handshake. Sit down, he said. Have something to eat. A steak, a beer, anything you want. Well, it was 11 a.m. A steak, a beer? Jerry was ready to throw up just looking at him. But he sat down and ordered. Hey, I heard a lot about you. You write good music. Thanks, Jerry said. But I write the words. Oh, well, words are good too. All the gargoyles nodded in agreement. Jerry put the paper bag with the suspenders in it on the table. You wrote for Elvis. What's his name? Yeah. Blue suede shoes, right? No, I didn't write blue suede shoes. You didn't? Which one did you write? Hound Dog. I wrote Hound Dog. Oh, Hound Dog. That's pretty good, too. You made a lot of money, huh? Yeah. How long does it take to write a song like that? Ten minutes. What did you make off of it? About a quarter million. He did some calculating on his fingers. Twenty-five grand a minute. Not bad. How's the business? I hear you and your partner are doing real well. By now, Lieber figured this was a shakedown. Sonny had both gnarly hands open flat on the table, massaging the top. One of his fingers slid against the paper bag. The tip of Jerry's son's suspenders poked out. What are these? You mind? He held up the little red suspenders in front of the jury of gargoyles. Hey, look at these. Suspenders. Kid suspenders. I love kids. This guy loves kids. He eyed Jerry sincerely. Jerry, I got kids. I love them too. Jerry would soon learn that this guy who loved kids was Genovese capo Sonny Franchise. Growing up on the streets of Baltimore, Jerry had met some tough longshoremen, but Sonny Franchise chilled him to the bone. The mobster eventually served a full 25-year stretch in federal prison 
Sonny's fingers came to a halt on the table, and he took dead aim eye to eye. You want to hear a riddle? He turned to a greasy, blonde-haired Quasimodo with bulbous blue eyes. Not, not a riddle, I mean an antidote. It ain't an antidote, came blue eyes. It's an ictote. You know what the fuck I mean. Let me ask Jerry a few questions. Jerry, where does a Catholic boy go when he gets into trouble? I don't know. Where does a Catholic boy go? He goes to see his priest, Sonny said, satisfied. You're a Jew boy, right? Yeah. Where does a Jew boy, I mean a Jewish boy, go when he gets into trouble? Jerry thought he'd be cute and answered, To his lawyer? Sonny laughed, which was not endearing, and pointed to his henchmen who started tittering. Isn't he funny? Then Sonny fixed his stare upon Jerry Lieber. The laughter dried up, and his face shriveled into a prune. You're funny, but you're wrong. You're a Jew. A Jew boy goes to his rabbi. And guess what? I'm your rabbi, and you got trouble. If you're looking for trouble, you came to the right place. If you're looking for trouble, just look right in my face. I was born standing up and talking back. My daddy was a green Whatever happened next is deeply buried in the shadows of music business lore. The mob reclaimed Times Square in the 1960s, a turf they lost after Prohibition ended. I've heard tall tales like one about Jerry being hung outside the Brill Building penthouse by his ankles. Jerry and Mike made a pact never to discuss it and remained paranoid 45 years later. But the upshot of the lunch with Sonny was devastating. Lieber and Stoller sold their empire, Red Bird Music, to George Goldner for $1. Gargoyles with cauliflower ears became unnerving visitors to the Brill Building, intimidating songwriters and effectively destroying the careers of Jerry and Mike's girl groups. Lieber and Stoller's stable included the Adlibs, who did The Boy from New York City, the Exciters, who did Do Wah Diddy Diddy, the Dixie Cups, who did Chapel of Love, and the tough white chick Shangri-Las, who did leader of the pack. Jerry and Mike fled and avoided making records for three years. In their place, artistic decisions were influenced by guys with names like Punchy and Sluggo and Sally Meatballs, plunging the era of the Brill Building into its demise. Well, okay, Jerry. We'll look toward the end of Mar look toward the end of March for me to go west. Yes. And um, how's Chloe? Oh, she's magnificent. I got a Chloe now. I know. I know. We just sold lots of Girl Scout cookies. Oh, yeah. We okay. made the rounds. It's like a shakedown. I felt like the Sopranos. You walk into someone's house and they got to buy them. As an aside to all this, Jerry did not want Sonny's name mentioned in our book. He was still terrified. I said, that was 50 years ago. Jerry said, no, he's the scariest guy I ever met. He's got nephews, grandsons. I said, he must have perished long ago. But right after Jerry passed away in 2011, I found out that Sonny Franchise was still active as ever. He had been convicted of bank robbery in 1967 and sentenced to 50 years. He told the judge, You watch. I'm going to do the whole 50. 
And he basically did, getting out six times, but being sent right back each time on parole violations. Talk about serving time on your head. When he got out around 2010, at the age of 93, first thing he does is go out with two big nephews to shake down the Hustler Club and the Penthouse Club in New York, like it was still the 1960s. When the manager at the Penthouse Club presented a check for their drinks, one of the nephews threatened to throw him down the stairs unless he could come up with a way to make the bill disappear before his head hit the ground. The FBI was staked out, watching as a club manager was made to kiss Sonny's ring. So back he goes to prison for another seven years and was released in 2017 at the age of 100. Prosecutors alleged Sonny had killed between 30 and 100 people. Jerry was right. Sonny Franchise is still alive today, as of 2018, at 101 years old. behind the wheel of that racing machine. Boy, you sure do. Boy, you sure do look mean. Boy, you sure do look neat. But I know where you're going when that red light turns green. hundred miles an hour down the dead end street. A brilliant flash of light. Then darkness. A brilliant flash of light. Then you gone. Falling star, I know you. I know what you're about. Falling star, shine brightly. And burn out. It's about a, it's about like, it was a song written after James Dean about flowing out. What was, what song was that? It's never been recorded. Really? No. Who would that have been for? Uh, either a really funky lady country singer or somebody doing a real super big tit pops like a Dolly Parton. These are songs I'm rediscovering that have never been recorded. Never, never saw Another dark experience happened to Jerry in 1955, long before Sonny and right before Elvis. When Jerry and Mike were young white writers of hits for the black rhythm and blues market in Los Angeles. He crashed his new Jaguar in 1955, the same year James Dean fatally crashed his Porsche. Flush with cash, Jerry bought himself a Jaguar. One night at an Italian restaurant, James Dean challenged Jerry to a drag race. What kind of car you got? Jag. That's an old lady's car, said Dean, who drove a Porsche. Both young hipsters psyched each other out and quit before gunning the engines. That was that. But one night afterward, Jerry was demonstrating his automotive bravado to two black girls. These weren't black debutantes like Lieber and Stoller usually dated. They were hookers. One started to yell, stomping her big foot over his on the gas pedal. Come on, Jerry, hurry up. Gotta make another trick. That would have made a hell of a Beach Boys song. The car crashed, killing one of the poor girls. Lieber was charged with vehicular manslaughter. He doesn't discuss it, of course, but her ghost has haunted him for the rest of his life. This is Tales of My Dead Heroes. I'm Josh Allen Friedman. 
We'll be back next week with part two of Midnight Jerry Lieber. It only gets better. Visit our website at blackcracker.fm for photos and details on this podcast. But just one thing before I do strike the match. Let me see.